we have a tendency to want instant gratification, don't we? Especially in our society today, it's all about getting a quick thrill, results without the work, rewards without the sacrifice. I've seen this many times as a piano teacher when you play a piece of music for your student and they love it, they, they think it sounds great, so impressive. It's like, oh, I really want to be able to play that piece. But when you tell them, well, yeah, it's probably going to take you X number of weeks or probably months to learn this, there's usually this frown comes upon their face and they start complaining because they don't want to have to put in the work. They just want to be able to play immediately. The thought of, of suffering or, or having to go through some kind of painful process for something more rewarding, is, it's, it's almost kind of repugnant to us, isn't it? Because it, it seems to fly in the face of our perceived God-given right to, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As the saying goes, we all want to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And, and let's face it. If it was our choice, we'd really, we'd kind of like to go straight to the resurrection without the crucifixion, wouldn't we? We'd um, often like to skip from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, just glossing over the bread and the wine of the Last Supper, glossing over the blood, the cross and the nails of Jesus, agonizing death, so that we can get to the uplifting message of the resurrection complete with Easter bunnies and candy. But you know what? By doing that, if we do that, we sanitize the brutality of the cross. We diminish and downplay the outright depravity and evil of sin, both in ourselves and in the world around us. We also, if we do that, conveniently forget that our God is a, is a holy God. And his holiness demands justice. And without God's justice, evil would go unpunished and there would be no consequences for sin, for wrongdoing and all the evil that we see in the world. Thankfully, we do have a God who's just, who will punish all the evil acts, even the things that we don't see getting their just desert in this life. And we will learn that God's justice demanded the cross and his infinite love gave his Jesus to go to the cross for us. So instead tonight of glossing over the bread and the wine and the blood and the cross and the nails, instead I want to call us to meditate on the cross, to partake in Jesus' sufferings so that we might know Jesus more fully. And when we know Jesus more fully, we live our faith out more fully. You know, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So this won't necessarily be an uplifting and comfortable sermon. 
You know, I like to inject humor into my sermons, but today that's probably not going to be the case. Because I want us to go where Jesus went in his suffering. I want us for a brief window of time tonight to lay aside our busyness, to lay aside our cell phone scrolling and social media and texts and emails and just, and just be with Jesus. Can we do that tonight? Can we, can we just be with Jesus through his suffering so that we might know him more fully? There's, there's something powerful about being able to go through what someone else is suffering. In many ways, it brings you closer to somebody, doesn't it? When you suffer together, you experience their suffering. It brings you closer to them than virtually anything else in life can. Just a week ago, I was, I was on call at the hospital at Boston Medical Center. And uh, I got paged at around 12.30, 12.30 a.m. And a, a nurse asked me to come in explaining there was, a, there was a man who was at the bedside of his mother. And his mother was dying. She was, she was very close to death. And he was very distraught and he'd asked for a chaplain. So I went out, probably got there around one o'clock, and spent the next couple of hours with him, just talking to him. He was explaining how he was an only child, how his mum and him lived in the same building. She was just the floor below him. And he said, you know, my, my girlfriend lost her mother a few months ago, and I didn't, he said, I, d- I didn't get it. I didn't understand what she was going through, but now I understand. Now I know the pain that she went through and is still going through. And I tried to encourage him. I said, what you are experiencing and what she's experiencing will bring you closer together. That I can promise you. And so my hope tonight as we meditate on Jesus' death is that it will draw all of us closer to him. So listening to the narrative that we just heard tonight, just from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus goes through three stages of persecution and suffering before he dies. And these three stages are abandonment, mockery, and torture. And yesterday, if you were able to attend the service, we talked about how Jesus was abandoned by everyone. His closest friends, his disciples, those who had just told him earlier that they would die for him, they ran off and hid in fear. Peter, one of his most intimate friends, one of the the, the three closest to Jesus along with James and John. Peter denied him not once, not twice, but three times. So I don't know the man. If you were here last night, I asked you if maybe you had felt abandoned at some time in your life by your friends or by your family. Maybe you felt betrayed. And I tried to stress the fact that Jesus knows how you feel if you've gone through that. He can relate. 
But you know, perhaps you're the one here tonight who's feeling a deep shame for a time in your life when you let a friend down or a family member, where you abandoned them, where perhaps you feel like the coward. I remember a time when I was a, a young teenager and we have a celebration in, in, in England called uh, Bonfire Night, Guy Fawkes Night. And it's basically a celebration of a man called Guy Fawkes who was, who was caught before uh, he was trying to uh, blow up the Houses of Parliament. This was back in uh, 1605. And he'd stored barrels of gunpowder underneath the Houses of Parliament. And he was getting ready to light the fuse and he got caught. And of course he was sentenced to death. But celebrations started emerging of that where people would gather together and they would light bonfires and set off fireworks in celebration of the fact that the Houses of Parliament had not been blown up. So every year in England on November 5th, people gather in communities and they have big bonfires, either in a community, communal bonfire or in people's backyards, whatever. And we we let off fireworks. And of course, as, as kids and teenagers, you see fireworks and... You get up to all kinds of mischief with the fireworks. So one year, I was with about four or five of my friends, and we were, we were out in, in the sort of the town center. There was a big bonfire going, and we saw a group of other youths across the field, and we decided it would be fun to fire a firework rocket at them. And I, my foot was the rocket launcher, and we lit the rocket, and it went flew right into the group of youths. Of course, we thought it was hilarious. Went on our way. Later that night, we were hanging out in, around our street when all of a sudden, a gang of about 30 youths came around the corner with sticks, with bottles, and they were looking for us. My friends, we all scattered. We ran. I ran home. That was the coward in me. And it was something I was ashamed of when I saw my friends again because they knew I'd run home. They knew that I had had abandoned them in that moment. And perhaps you have something in your life like that that you're deeply regretful of. But I want to remind you that there is also hope for you if you are feeling ashamed or a coward about something because remember something... Peter denied Jesus three times, but he later affirmed Jesus three times. And Jesus reinstated him, and ultimately Peter would die for Jesus. So Jesus was abandoned. And number two, Jesus was mocked. He was mocked by his own people, the Jews, and he was mocked by the Romans, the Gentiles. His own people, whom he had loved whom he'd healed, he'd restored sight to, had performed many miracles for, were now calling for his death. They'd rather have a murderer and a thug like Barabbas go free than tolerate Jesus, who was completely innocent. The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the religious elites, they mocked Jesus, they mocked his divinity when they accused him of blasphemy. They even mocked him and made fun of him as he hung dying on the cross in agony. When I read that passage, it to me it beggars belief that anybody can be so cold-hearted 
is to see another human being hanging on a cross, dying in agony, and still be able to laugh and mock them. But this was, as Jesus had said earlier, the hour when darkness reigns. But they didn't have one morsel of pity or sympathy. Instead, stone-cold-blooded evil mockery, shouting gleefully, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down for the cross if you are the Son of God. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Mocking with cruel taunts, even though they had seen the miracles he had done. Even though they knew, many of them knew, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. They had witnessed these amazing things, and yet they still mocked him. This was humanity's worst work, but it would turn out to be God's most triumphant work. The Roman soldiers, they also mocked Jesus, didn't they? They mocked Jesus, calling him the king of the Jews, making a twisted parody of his kingship. Of course, little did they know that they were mocking the only one true king. And you know, isn't it funny because we, if you're anything like me, we we fear being mocked for our faith, don't we? We actually fear telling people that we're Christians, that we love Jesus. We fear sharing the good news with other people because we're afraid people are going to think badly of us or make fun of us or think we're a little kooky, one of those Jesus freaks. We're afraid of being mocked for a, a very small thing. But Jesus here was mocked for everything. So he was abandoned, he was mocked, and thirdly, Jesus was tortured. The Jews spat in his face and punched and slapped him in the face, we're told. And the Roman soldiers, they spat on him and struck him repeatedly in the head with a staff. I don't know if you've ever been punched in the face, like really punched in the face, but it, it, it is traumatic. I've, I've been punched in the face a number of times, and I've had my nose broken, and on another occasion, I had my cheekbone broken. But those were both one very well-placed, well-timed punch. Jesus was pummeled repeatedly in the head, and not just with fists, but with a wooden staff. Imagine somebody basically taking a baseball bat to his head. No doubt his nose would be broken, swollen and bleeding, which in turn would make his eyes swell and stream. There would be blood running down the back of his throat, unmistakable metallic taste in his mouth. There's a good chance that his jaw was dislocated and that his cheekbones were broken and probably his eye sockets were fractured as well from the repeated beating. When you're hit with such force in the face, it's actually, it is possible that your eyeball is knocked out of its socket. Isaiah's words from chapter 52 say, There were many who were appalled at him. 
His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Those words aren't so hard to believe, are they? And they don't really seem like an exaggeration when we really imagine what Jesus went through. And we haven't even mentioned the scourging, the flogging he got. Many people didn't even survive a flogging. The Romans used a whip called a flagrum. It comprised of a handle about eight inches long with uh, 12 to 24 inch leather straps attached at one end. And at the other end of the straps were tied uh, little lead balls that looked a little bit like mini barbells. And they they had on them uh, sharp pieces of metal or bone shards, glass or sharp rocks. And they were designed to break the skin, to penetrate the tissue and, and pull away the flesh, often exposing bowels, ribs, the spine. The scourging alone was brutal. And finally, when they had grown tired of their sadistic beatings, they nailed his hands and feet to the cross, where for the next six hours, he would hang, slowly suffocating and bleeding to death. I want to read for you a a description of what it must have been like for Jesus as he was crucified. This isn't easy listening, but it's important for to us to remember what Jesus went through. Following this, the scourging, was Jesus' crucifixion. Miscellaneous beatings aside. In crucifixion, the victim was laid down with his arms perpendicular to the torso. Nails five to nine inches long would then be driven through both wrists crushing the medium nerve, the largest nerve going to the hand, and creating extraordinary pain. Nails would also be driven through the ankles with the legs in a bent position. When the victim was raised to a vertical position, his shoulders and sometimes elbows and wrists would become dislocated from the weight, making them useless to alleviate the pressure on his chest. At this point, the nailing of the wrist kept the position of the body so that the pressure on the chest was relentless and kept the victim from flopping forward. With the pressure on the chest, the victim could not exhale. In order to lessen the pressure, the victim had to straighten his legs using the nails through his ankles as leverage. Having exhaled, the victim then sunk back down to his original position. The wood from which the cross was made was rough, making the sliding of the victim's back, whose flesh was exposed from scourging, very painful. As the victim's strength was slowly worn down, breathing would become less frequent, increasing the acidity in the blood. This acidity would cause an irregular heartbeat that was already rapid because of the hypovolemic shock. This would have caused fluids to build up in the membranes surrounding the heart and lungs. And death would ultimately come in the form of asphyxiation or heart failure. Depending on a victim's condition upon being put on the cross, death could sometimes take days. 
If the executioner wanted to speed up the process, he would break the legs of the crucified man with a club and death would come within minutes. In the case of Jesus, the executioner was preparing to do just that, break his legs, but Jesus appeared to be already dead. To make sure, the executioner took his spear and thrust it into Jesus' side, piercing his heart and lung. If Jesus had not already died, he surely would have, as a result of the wound caused by the spear. There was no question whatsoever in the mind of the professional executioner that Jesus was dead. I know that was hard for me to read. I know it must have been hard to listen to. But it drives home the reality of what Jesus went through for us. But the deeper and far more devastating pain and torture that Jesus was to experience was only just beginning. You see, as as awful and as terrible as the physical suffering Jesus was going through was, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 5 verse 21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That is a profound mystery. God who made him who had no sin, he made him to be sin for us. This is a deep mystery that we can't fully understand. But on the cross, the sin of the world, all the evil, depraved acts of twistedness, sickness, perversion, the most grotesque of deeds was all placed on Jesus. One theological commentator put it like this. He said, in a sense, beyond human comprehension, God treated Christ as sin, aligning him so totally with sin and its dire consequences that from God's viewpoint, he became indistinguishable from sin itself. And at that moment that Jesus became indistinguishable from sin, when he became a curse for us, as scripture tells us, Jesus was banished from God's presence because sin cannot exist in God's presence. And in that moment of utter despair and aloneness, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, for all eternity, who had never experienced separation from the Father, now experienced complete, barren, and desolate aloneness. You know, none of us really actually have any idea what it truly feels like to be out of the presence of God. Because whether you're a believer in God or not, this world we live in, full of the evil and bad things it is, is still full of God's presence and full of his goodness. Every piece of goodness you experience in life, every bit of laughter, every bit of joy, is because God's presence is still in this world. But in this moment, Jesus, that was removed. We can't imagine what that feels like. Joel Beakey says it like this. He says, In his hour of greatest need comes a pain unlike anything the son has ever experienced. His father's abandonment. 
When Jesus most needs encouragement, no voice cries from heaven, this is my beloved son. No angel is sent to strengthen him. No, well done thou good and faithful servant resounds in his ears. The women who supported him are silent. The disciples, cowardly and terrified, have fled. Feeling disowned by all, Jesus endures the way of suffering alone. Deserted and forsaken in utter darkness. Every detail of this horrific abandonment declares the heinous character of our sins. He did it. He did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for people out on the streets in the town of Bilrica. He did it for the people of this nation, for the people of the world. He did it because of his great love for us. And at that moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, we're told in the account we just read from Matthew that the earth cried out shaking, splitting rocks open. And the temple curtain was split in two from top to bottom, showing that Jesus' separation from the Father was the beginning of our reparation with the Father. That veil was coming down that had separated us from God. It was being torn down. And here's the thing. Here's the amazing thing. Even in the moment of his death, resurrection power was already happening. Even as Jesus died, resurrection power was already happening. Why do I say that? Because look at what it says in Matthew 27, verse 52. We just read it. We are told that when Jesus, at the moment of Jesus' death, the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. This happened as Jesus died. So even right there, there's, there's resurrection power bursting forth in that moment of death. And then we're told after Jesus had risen, that these other holy people who had risen went out into the cities. Tony Evans, a preacher and a pastor, pointed out that Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. He was just getting started. And so for now, until Sunday, we wait. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we do wait in hopeful expectation that your death will not end in defeat, but in victory. Your word tells us that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And we give thanks to you that you took on death and sin itself for us. Because it was a fight that we could never win. Without the cross, we would be lost. And so we thank you. We praise you. And we wait for Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray.